nicer preaching to faces than to a camera. Uh, If you are joining us online, though, I'm looking at you now. So happy that you could still be with us. One of the awesome things about living in 2020 is the digital opportunities we have to still worship together. Uh, We did, uh, it's not sell out because it's not selling nothing, but we we ran out of seats for both services, uh, which is great as far as what we thought we could accommodate because we're trying to open up slowly and uh, make sure that we've got enough space for everybody. Uh, The good news is if you are unable to uh, reserve a seat for this week, we're actually going to be able to open up more seats uh, for next week as we've seen what, a, what the you know, full service looked like. We know that we've still got space, so we're going to make that available for you as well for next week. But guys, so glad that you're here. Uh, glad that we get to do this together. Happy Father's Day, uh, dads. Um, I'm excited about what God has for us. But what we want to do right now is uh, simply acknowledge God's presence, okay? Uh, we... Uh, we're running this haze, and I think that that's really making it feel like God's presence. Actually, it's, uh, it's, it's killing all the Rona in the room. That's what the haze is doing. No, I'm kidding. Don't. I'm joking online. That's not, that doesn't, that's not true. Um, but what we do want to do is acknowledge simply that God is here because uh, Jesus said that when his body gathers together, that Christ as the head of the body is uniquely present with us. And so we just want to acknowledge that reality and give God the opportunity to speak into our own hearts and lives uh, this morning. Uh, give him uh, the opportunity to, to say something to us. So let's just take a minute and, and pray and we'll dive into our text for this morning. Father God, we uh, recognize that you're here. Um, God, thank you for the ability to begin to regather physically. Even if it's at limited capacity, God, there's just something so Uh, needed about being together with one another. God, you created us to be in community, first and foremost with you and then with one another. And God, you created us as humans formed from the dust of the ground. We are physical by nature. And so the ability to gather physically, um, God, is something that you designed us to do. We are not simply disembodied souls or disembodied minds. We are embodied. And Christ, you became embodied, put on human flesh to know us, to love us, to die for us. And we just want to say thank you. Father God, uh, we give you permission to speak. Spirit, we open up our hearts and our minds to you right now. Come and have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians have many enemies, but the Christian has none. Let me say that again. I want that just to sink in. Christians have many enemies, but the Christian has none. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines an enemy as one that is antagonistic to another, especially one seeking to injure, overthrow, or confound an opponent. If you have your Bibles today, I'd love you to open up to Psalm 23. As you know, we've been walking through this psalm, and the riches, the depth, uh, it's like this beautiful, amazing feast 
of language and pictures uh, that King David uh, wrote for us that God has inhabited to speak into our lives. And it's so crazy relevant for everything that's been going on these past few months and these past few weeks. And so we're going to continue to dive into Psalm 23 this morning, starting in verse 1, and then we're going to read up to the text that we're going to look at today, which is the beginning of verse 5. So at the very beginning, King David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, a feast that God invites us to. Um, I love food. Like I'm just saying, like I love, I love to eat, all right? I love watching shows where they talk about food and uh, uh, how food gets made. I, I love it when there's like this really uh, uh, lavish way that a Per, uh, a particular meal is like prepared. Um, I, I started trying to think about the amount of times that I've literally eaten something on stage as part of a sermon, and I've done it so much, I, I couldn't even count them all. And, and so that's how, like, I love food. I love talking about food. Uh, and one of the reasons is because food is like massively important to God. Uh, it's littered all throughout scripture. Stories about Feasts and meals and uh, food matters to God. In fact, I will go down to uh, a place called the Hermitage down in Three Rivers, about an hour and a half south of here, for a silent retreat. I try to get down a couple of times a year for a couple of days. And, and while I'm down there, um, you eat in silence with whoever else happens to be there, which is really weird because you hear things when you're eating in silence that you don't normally hear when you're eating. Uh, and, and, but one of the things that they do, though, Whoever the host is that prepared the meal, uh, one of the few times that you hear any words spoken while you're there is before the meal, they will simply remind the participants, those that are at the table, that food is God's love made edible. Food is God's love made edible. Uh, one of my, my favorite meals that I've ever eaten was back in 1992. Like almost 30 years ago, folks. All right, that's a long time. So I, you know this must have been a good meal. I'm still remembering it. I actually uh, had just graduated from high school. My youth pastor uh, in my earlier high school years had become a missionary in Barcelona. And he invited myself and uh, two other uh, friends from church to go do a short-term missions project in Barcelona during the 92 Olympics. That was the dream team USA basketball original. Like, it was like the best. Uh, I'm not supposed to tell this story because it has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, I literally wanted to see them so bad that I was talking and trying to find tickets to get to a game, and a guy had tickets. The problem was he didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Spanish, but he had tickets. You could see it on there, USA basketball versus Spain. I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is going to be amazing. They were like reasonably priced. 
And uh, then after I bought them, I showed them to uh, my youth pastor who spoke Spanish. And uh, he informed me that I had just bought tickets to the uh, women's national team, not the men's, uh, which was still awesome to be there, but it, it was not Michael Jordan and uh, Pippin and Olajuwon and Bird. So that has nothing to do with the message. I just had to tell you that. Uh, what actually has to do with the message was uh, we were there, and there was a young couple that had just recently become followers of Jesus. And the fact that we were there to do ministry, they were just super excited to have us over and give some hospitality. Uh, hospitality is massively important in the biblical story. And there's still a lot of cultures where hospitality is like crucial to who they are. And so uh, we didn't know this at the time, but the guy was actually a chef. That's what he did for a living. And he was so excited to have us over in his house to eat at his table that he had prepared a meal that started like early in the morning. We didn't get there till later in the evening. And the meal started and didn't go until late into the, or didn't finish until late into the night. It was like this amazing feast. He had created uh, what is a very traditional Spanish feast called paella. And uh, this was a seafood paella. So it's like the saffron rice, but then it has all kinds of different seafoods in it. He had squid and shrimp and prawns and crawfish and sausage and uh, mussels. And it was like unbelievable. One of my favorite things I've ever eaten in my entire life. And we feasted that entire day. Uh, excuse me, that entire night. Uh, it was uh, amazing. Uh, food, the table does something to people. It opens up our hearts. It allows us to begin to embrace individuals, to have communication and relationship that we never would have had. There's something about breaking bread together. Uh, Jesus, uh, actually, before he leaves to the cross, he creates a meal for the disciples. You can read all about it in John 13. And in it, in that meal, he actually asks us to continue to commemorate it. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. And when Jesus returns, he says he's going to take us to a feast. He leaves us with a meal, and he's coming back to take us to a feast. A communion, you can kind of think about that. Every time that we take it, it's kind of like an hors d'oeuvre for the thing that's to come, right? I love hors d'oeuvres, okay? Tapas, right? You ever been to Sanchez here in GR? Oh, my goodness, right? That's what communion is intended to be. It's, it's, a, it's a table that Jesus brings us into. And hospitality was taken incredibly serious in biblical times because the host actually played a huge role in not only providing food, but also safety and service and sacrifice. That was the role that the host was intended to play. It's one of the reasons we actually love doing uh, what we call Dinner for 12 here. How many of you guys have ever been to a Dinner for 12? Oh, a number of you. Awesome. Super cool. Dinner for 12 is a blast. If you haven't come, you need to do it. All right? Uh, we have like eight to ten families that uh, host, and whenever we send out new dates, those, those folks start fighting over who can get them first because everybody loves to host. There's something powerful and beautiful about inviting people to your table to serve them, to sacrifice for them, to provide warmth and safety, a place uh, of haven and rest and relationship. Now in our text today, I don't know if you noticed this, but when we were reading through Psalm 23, you'll see that the first four verses are kind of clumped together, and then there's a little space between verses 5 and 6. It's actually because the metaphor changes 
here in verse 5. Uh, verses 1 through 4, God is our shepherd, taking care of his sheep. All right, And everything that the shepherd has, he gives to the sheep. That's why we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But in verse 5, it actually shifts. The metaphor turns from God as our shepherd to a picture of God as our host, inviting us into his house to eat at his table forever. Now God shows us that he is the the quintessential host, because he actually does all the things that a host is supposed to do. Provides protection, uh, provides food, uh, there is a sense of safety, uh, he's serving us, uh, there is sacrifice that is taking place. And so when David writes these words, David isn't just writing them uh, as though they're theoretical. Uh, David has actually experienced God as his host, the one who has invited him to the table. You see, uh, David... Being a man after God's own heart was willing to stand up against Goliath, this giant warrior, all right, when he was just a young shepherd boy. And as a result of standing up, David goes out and uh, he doesn't defeat Goliath. God defeats Goliath. He just uses David to do it. And everybody then starts singing David's praises. Oh, David's the best. David's awesome. And King Saul, he's not super excited about that because he wants to be known as the best. And so King Saul decides that David is no longer his friend. Now David is his enemy. And so King Saul is seeking multiple times to try to kill, all right? Not just put him in jail, not just like set him down a notch or two, literally trying to take his head off, trying to kill him. Saul has decided that David is his enemy. David, however, does not see Saul as his enemy. In fact, David says, uh, this is the Lord's anointed. I will never lay a finger on him. Even though David has multiple times where he could have killed Saul, he won't. He continues to honor him, and as a result, God honored David. You see, Christians have many enemies, but the Christian has none. Saul had decided David would be his enemy, but David decided Saul would not be his. Now, uh, I know that when David penned these words, though, he understood something. You see, he understood that his invitation to the table had not always been available. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 5. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read starting in verse 8 to get a better understanding of how powerful it is that God invites David and us to his table. We understand it better when we understand our relationship with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, David understood 
that he wasn't always a friend of God. In fact, there was a time when he was actually God's enemy. We see this right here. It's not just David, it's all of us. Every single one of us at one time were enemies with God, sinners. And even in that moment, God comes to us. God's love brought him towards us and then he was willing to die even while we were still his enemies so that he could invite us to the table. That's, that's the crazy thing in all of this is every single one of us was an enemy. None of us deserved a place at the table but that's what Jesus does. We actually move when we give ourselves to Christ, when we commit to being a follower of his from an enemy outside the house to a friend at the table. Christians have many enemies. I think, honestly, this is probably one of the hardest truths about following Jesus. I actually think this truth that Christians have many enemies uh, is actually, in some ways, harder to do than even loving your enemies. Um, I'm not a, uh, a natural like people pleaser, okay? I, I, I know I come off as pretty self-assured, like I, I got it together. Uh, I'm not afraid of conflict, uh, but the truth is, if you knew the internal dialogue that I have and what I feel, you would know that I'm terrified of having an enemy. I don't want people to hate me. I want people to like me. Does it... Does it mean that I will sometimes stand up for things that are unpopular? Yeah, maybe, but you want to know the truth? A lot of times, I, I don't want to. I'm afraid to because I want people to like me. I want the world to think that I'm cool. My wife, she's a, she's a two on the Enneagram. We got any Enneagram lovers out there? All right, I know some folks be loving that Enneagram, all right? And that's good. I do too. Uh, twos are my favorite people, okay? The reason... Uh, besides the fact that I'm married to one, is a two will literally give you the oxygen out of their lungs if you ask them for it. Okay, that's what it, I'm like, twos are like, I'll, whatever, if you need something, I'll get, you ask me, I will give it to you. I don't care if it means that I can't breathe, I'll give you my own breath. Like that's twos, are, so they can't stand the idea, the thought that somebody might not like them. A nine on the Enneagram, they're actually called the peacemaker. Okay, and, and that's a good thing. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But sometimes peacemakers, like, they're willing to bend over backwards, uh, you know, break themselves just to have peace, like whatever it takes. They're scared to death about the possibility of somebody not liking them. That's probably the, the biggest fear that a nine would have. And yet, when we read John chapter 15, we learn something about what it means to follow Christ. Look, I don't think anybody wakes up and says, oh, I can't wait to make an enemy today, okay? At least nobody that's healthy, all right? Uh, and yet when we read John chapter 15, we learn something from Jesus. Flip over to John chapter 15. We're going to read in verse 18. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, Jesus says this. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, though you don't belong to the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Uh, that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you? A servant 
is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This is a really uncomfortable truth a lot of times that we have. I, I want the world to like me, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I want the world to think I'm cool. I want them to think that I have cool Jordans. Okay? I want them to think that I got a cool haircut. I want them to like my tats. But more than that, I want them to like what I say. I, I want that. Truth is, is that the world hated Jesus. They didn't hate everything about Jesus. They liked a lot of things about him, but there were some things that they're like, yo, like Jesus, you're cool, except when you say that. And I think many of us wind up falling into the same trap. Like, yo, Jesus, you're cool. Like, I really like you when you say this and this, but man, Jesus, if I said what you said, like everybody would think I'm crazy, or they would think that I'm not kind, or they would think. And we find ourselves bending over trying to win the world's approval. And Jesus says, look, they, they crucified me. Well, one minute they're asking for me to be king. The next minute they're shouting crucify him. And, and, and Jesus just says, look, one of the most uncomfortable things about following me is that the world is... And, and let me just say this too, because this is important. There is not a culture in the world, in the history of mankind, that has been totally cool with Jesus. Doesn't matter if your Republicans got problems with Jesus, Democrats got re- problems with Jesus. That's just fact, friends. South America, Asia, Africa, Europe, North America, nobody's like, yo, Jesus, everything he says is like the best. No, nobody says that, right? So if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to understand that the Christian, or excuse me, Christians have many enemies. Christians have many enemies. If the world crucified Christ, it's probably not going to celebrate you. The Christian, however, has no enemies. Christians have many enemies, but the Christian has no enemies. How can I say those two things in the same breath? How can we say the Christians have many enemies, but the Christian has no enemies. Well, flip over to Matthew chapter 5 for the answer to that. Matthew chapter 5, this is the last passage we're going to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking, starting in verse 43, and he says this. Oh, that's Mark. Let me get to Matthew. I was like, that's weird, because that's not what I thought Jesus said to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 43, we read these words. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because that was the prevailing ethic of the day. You love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. You're against me? Yo, bring it. Verse 44, Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wore this shirt on purpose. Can you read it? Pray for your enemies. Uh, Friends, this is one of the most difficult things for us to do as Christians, but I actually think that uh, in some ways it's easier than recognizing that we won't always be loved. 
The reason that we can say that the Christian, or excuse me, Christians have many enemies, but the Christian has none is the same way that we could say Saul was, had decided David was his enemy, but David decided Saul was not his. There might be people who don't like you, who despise you, who think that you're crazy or think that you're uh, unkind or unloving or because you say this thing or the other thing because Jesus said it. And yet, we don't have to view them as an enemy. In fact, we don't view them as an enemy. We don't have enemies. We love our enemies. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King said that he would preach on this passage at least once a year. Uh, I was reading one of his sermons uh, this past week where he was actually talking about this very text, and he said this. He said, the words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love even for enemies. Now let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't playing. He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil about you. He realized that it was painfully hard, pressingly hard, but he wasn't playing. And we cannot dismiss this passage as just another example of hyperbole, just a sort of exaggeration to get across the point. This is the basic philosophy of all that we hear coming from the lips of our master. Because Jesus wasn't playing, because he was serious, we have the Christian and moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words and to discover how we can live out this command and why we should live by this command. If ever there was a time to hear a salient voice, this is the time to listen to Dr. King. And not because it's Dr. King, but because Dr. King is quoting his master, Jesus. Um, a lot of times we look at our heroes like MLK and uh, we assume they must always have been tough and brave and strong. Um, I was reading a story about uh, not long after uh, the bus boycott and uh, uh, when Rosa Parks was, was arrested, and that was actually when uh, MLK was actually kind of growing into a prominency as, as kind of the main voice of the movement. And he wasn't sure that he actually wanted that. Uh, he mentions feeling just overwhelmed and fearful. He was actually arrested uh, and really thought that he was going to be lynched by the police. Uh, wound up um, being released from jail. A couple days later was having a meeting with a number of the folks that were a part of uh, kind of his advisory team. They had been getting calls. He said upwards of almost 40 calls per day of anonymous callers, no caller ID back then, saying, if you don't leave town, we're going to kill you. He got home that night, said he was just exhausted and really feeling the weight. And he said, I started looking for a way that I could possibly get out of this. His wife was already asleep in bed. But the phone rang and he picked it up and on the other line was a sneering voice saying, leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. 
He said that his fear surged in that moment. He couldn't sleep. He went downstairs into his kitchen, started to brew a cup of coffee. And this is what he says. He says, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. And with my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. He says, it seemed in that moment, I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard this voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And three days later, Dr. King's house was bombed and his family barely escaped with their lives. And about an hour after that happened, news had spread quickly within the community and a large mob gathered at his house these were his friends that wanted to go and do some damage. In fact, uh, he writes that their mouths were clenched and their fists were closed and they started yelling out, vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. And MLK stood up on his shattered porch and raised his hands. And this is what he said. He says, friends, we must meet hate with love. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not stop because God is with this movement. Go home and with this glorious faith, uh, go home with this glorious faith and radiant assurance. It says, and thus the mob began to dissipate, their mood disarmed, their ears ringing with the message of gospel nonviolence. King later wrote this as he reflected on that night. He says, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My experience with God a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. How could he say that? If somebody had been threatening me, like, I'm probably like, yo, let's go. Not, but that's one thing. Maybe I'd be good enough if they were threatening me. Maybe I'd be like, all right, turn the other cheek, T. But if they started threatening my family, if somebody blew up my house, tried to kill me and my kids and my wife, and then I had a bunch of my TLC folks came to my house, let's go. I'm like, yo, let's go. Like, that, that's how I would feel, Right? I don't know if I would have the same kind of inner strength. I hope I would, but I don't know. How could MLK say that? How could he feel what he was feeling and yet still trust that God was with him? You know how? Dr. King had believed what King David had believed a few thousand years earlier, that God actually was his shepherd. And because God was his shepherd, he didn't lack anything. In fact, he preached another sermon on fear. And he said this. He, he said, uh, fear is mastered through love and faith. And it is that love and faith that gives a man the awareness that he is a child of God. He knows that he is. You want to know how Dr. King could continue to preach Christian nonviolence? 
in the face of hatred, in the face of people that had said right to his face, you are my enemy. Dr. King didn't reverse it. Dr. King said, I will not look at you as my enemy. I will look at you as someone to love. That only happens when you actually fully, truly believe that God is your shepherd. And in that, you lack nothing. Uh, Dallas Willard said this about Psalm 23, 5. He said, since I love my enemies, since I love my enemies, I would not feast upon a delicious meal in their presence and let them stand there hungry. The abundance of God's provision and safety in my life is so great I would invite them to enjoy what God has prepared for me. (sighs) Friends, when we get it, when we fully get it that God is our shepherd and therefore we lack nothing, we don't simply enjoy the bounty of God's table for ourselves, we invite others to it. Uh, We love our enemy. We die for our enemy. And then we invite our enemy to the table because that's what Jesus did for us when we were his enemies. He loved us and then he died for us and then he invited us to the table. And this is all like theoretical, right? Like everything I'm saying right now, it's theoretical because you're probably sitting there thinking like, yeah, dude, that's cool. That's great. Like I'm totally bought in. It gets real though when we ask God, well, who is my enemy though? Who is the one that wants my downfall, wants my destruction, wants to see me mocked or ridiculed or set aside or called weird or stupid or whatever it is that we're afraid of being labeled or called? or Friends, I want to move it from the theoretical to the real right now and just by taking about 30 seconds. And I just want you to sit with God. And if you're willing, open up your palms and just say, God, help me see who views me as enemy so that I can learn how to feed them. Take this right now. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Let God speak. God, who views me as enemy? God, how can I feed them? Because our goal is to be like Jesus, we too learn to love our enemies. We too learn to die for our enemies and we too invite them to the table. Friends, we cannot effectively love our enemies if we're unwilling to die. And we will not effectively love our enemies until we believe that in God we lack nothing. We feed our enemies from the abundance of God's table. A table that can't run dry. A table that has everything. More than we could ever hope to consume. Friends, let's be that church. In our neighborhoods, in our families, in our city. Let's be that church that will love 
that would be willing to lay down our own lives so that we can invite our enemies to the table. Father God, we want to not just talk a game. Oh God, it's so easy for me to sometimes stand up here and talk. Talk about these things that, God, I I know they're good. We need to hear them. But God, I don't want to be just a church that talks. I want to be a church that does. I want to be a Christian that does. Like God, don't let us Don't let us be hearers of the word. Let us be doers of the word. Thank you, Father, that though we were your enemies, you loved us and died for us and invited us to your table. And we can feast at your table in the presence of our enemies. But we don't simply stay there for ourselves. We take the abundance that you have given to us and then we invite those same enemies to come and feast, to know you to follow you, to love you. God, I don't like being unliked. The thought of being hated is like terrifying. But God, I know that if I'm actually going to follow you, that's going to be a reality that I come up against, that all of us come up against at some point. Let us stand firm in our trust and belief in who you are. But God, let us never Give hate for hate, blow for blow, injury for injury. Though others may defeat us, let it be our life's mission to see them win. Though others may strike us, let it be our life's mission to bless them. That's what you do. Let us follow your example. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.